You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 32 with Dr. Lara Zabaras. Lara is a psychologist and a food freedom coach who helps women create a healthy and happy relationship with food without guilt or emotional eating. She is the founder of Health Mindset Matters, a program which helps women discover the science and psychology behind their eating struggles, specifically binges. She teaches women how to tune into their bodies and rediscover how eating can be both for nourishment and enjoyment, something we talk a little bit about soon, creating a mindset for sustainable health. So Laura and I start with her personal story with eating disorder recovery. And then while she was in recovery, developed what we call orthorexia. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that is. All the while really thinking that she was in recovery. So part of what we pick apart is how diet culture has sort of morphed into wellness culture and how that really is just code for disordered eating. This is such an important conversation because this is something that society deems as quote normal. And if we don't call it out for what it is, then the normal continues to be disordered. So come on with me. Let's jump right in. Well, thanks, Laura, for joining me. I really, really appreciate this. Um, I'm excited. Maybe before we even jump into anything, or maybe this is what our conversation is going to sort of be, but can you introduce yourself a bit? Yes, thank you. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I've been following you for a while now, and I really love your podcast so much. I always get so much out of it. So I am Lara Zabaris. I'm a psychologist and a food freedom coach based here in the UK. And I'm all about helping women create a healthy and happy relationship with food. Yeah. Well, I know that your journey starts a lot earlier than your professional journey. So can you take us back to start with your personal journey, your story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, A lot of my story includes a very negative relationship with food. So I actually started dieting around age 16. And that was partly because I'd had quite negative comments about my body. I decided that I wanted to hop on a diet to change. And at the time, I'd seen a lot of people around me, like my mom and my aunts dieting. So it just seemed like a very natural thing to do. And I very much hopped on to the fatty diets that were around at the time, the low calorie diets. Atkins was quite popular back then. Yeah, I was wondering, I was like, which ones were popular then for you? (laughs) (laughs) It was the low fat and Atkins, I think, were quite popular and anything in a magazine. And that very quickly led to quite disordered eating. And by around my early 20s, that had morphed into a full-blown eating disorder. And essentially, I was bulimic, but I was in the stage where I was either trying to restrict everything I was eating very, very heavily, but that would never last too long because I, I couldn't, basically. So then I would end up binging. And then I learned in my sort of late teens, early 20s, how to purge. So it was maybe a 
a few months later that I realized actually I was bulimic. And at the time I was also doing my undergraduate degree as a psychologist. I'm trained as a psychologist. And so I was learning about eating disorders in my degree and also experiencing myself. And when I finished university and I moved to London at the time, I realized I really didn't want to stay doing that. So I went to see an eating disorder counselor and also a nutrition counselor, and they helped me get back on track. And actually, because I think I'd learned a lot about eating disorders in my degree, it was actually relatively quick uh, turnaround to get back on track. And I think that was because I really wanted to. I was very ready for that change. Mm -hmm. Wait, I'm curious, how did your training with eating disorders help you in your recovery? That's a good question, actually. I think it was more having my eyes opened to the negative long-term impact that something like bulimia can have on you. So I had learned things like what it does to your heart, for example, what it can do to your teeth. And I just thought, gosh, and and actually I also had this experience where I went to the dentist and the dentist asked me whether I, did I eat a lot of oranges or lemons because my teeth were starting to look like someone who did. And obviously that was from the bulimia. And that was another kind of wake up call. That's so strange that that's what the dentist would gravitate to, that they would even think that there was a thing called purging. Yes, there was no comment on that. Oh, maybe maybe she was just trying to be nice. Maybe she didn't want to bring attention to that. Yeah, so I guess in answer to your question, I think it was because I was very aware of the long-term impact it would have on me. So I was very ready to change at that point. Yeah, and then I had these few years of relative food freedom. And then I got pregnant and I had children and it was... During that period of time where I very much struggled with my body image and not so much whilst pregnant, but post-pregnancy, there was so much pressure out there to, yeah, to get get your body back, to get your pre-baby weight back. And so I really wanted to find something that would help me get back in shape, essentially. But I also was very aware that I didn't want to diet again because I knew what dieting had done to me in the past. But can we and talk about where... that just for a second, about the pregnancies are yes. like, for the most part, people are of the mind, no diets, that's not healthy for the baby and sort of protecting baby and growing baby. And then after the second you come home for the hospital, it's like, well, why do you still look pregnant? And how long did it take you to bounce back? And that's so harmful because, I mean, I don't know what your experience is like, but to a certain extent, I'm not so sure that that our bodies are meant to ever go back. I mean, it held a child. Yeah. And if you've had multiple pregnancies and several children, I agree. And I think there's so much pressure out there as if you are that bounce back word as well. I struggle with so much because it's like almost like a balloon, you know, you can blow it up and then it will go back to the size it was. And I think that there's very little out there that acknowledges that it might not happen, but also that it's okay if it doesn't happen because your body has been through such an enormous change and it's everything, you know, people talk about your, your pert breasts, you know, getting your boobs back. And I'm like, that's, you know, when you're breastfed and you've been pregnant several times, it's just not going to happen. And yeah, you that's know, your bo- like your, reality your check tum- people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And if your tummy has been stretched, you know, I don't know, 
five times the size or six times the size of what it is normally it's an impossible thing and that's what women I think about all the advertising everything I read everything you hear about all these celebs who get back into their jeans six weeks after they've given birth and you're like yeah how how do they yeah do I mean I was actually watching reality tv a little bit of advice I guess but anyways there's this woman who gave birth and not even a couple of weeks later she was already doing some intricate poses like yoga poses and I was looking at it and I'm like medically contraindicated to move like that at the very least before six weeks. And so the images that we're getting from TV, from media are, besides for that they're not realistic, they're actually not indicated. It's actually quite bad for you if we're gonna use like sort of a general term there. I was really shocked about that one. Yes, and and there's so much of that messaging out there, isn't there? And I think that's what was my slippery slope because I thought, well, I'm not going to diet but I do want to get back, whatever that means. And that's when I really got sucked into wellness culture. And I started following some influencers who were saying you need to eat in a certain way in order to be quote unquote healthy. And basically I jumped onto, I can only describe it as a very extreme quote unquote clean eating regime where I was slowly over time cutting more and more foods out of my diet. But I think now I can see that as I was suffering from orthorexia as that period of time went onwards. But really in the time, at the time, all I could see was that I was doing it for my quote unquote health. And each time I was like, because you were in your recovery, like you weren't doing this. You were in recovery. Hello. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I kept on thinking, well, I'm I'll cut out gluten because I clearly am intolerant to it. And then it was oh, yeah, that's a big dairy. One. <laughs> and then it was making sure that you don't have anything with sugar in it. And then you have to make sure that everything you eat is organic. And it just becomes these very, very rigid rules that you're following. And it was funny because I probably spent a good couple of years trying to eat in this very perfect, quote unquote, healthy way. And also it was very alluring because you're getting lots of really great compliments from people. So people are like, wow, you eat so healthy. I wish I could be like you. And don't you look great? So there's something about the feedback you get from people as well. But then I had these series of almost like aha moments where I was seeing in myself some of that very disordered eating that I had experienced when I was bulimic. So I was finding that I was actually starting to engage in some binging behavior, but it was only ever on quote unquote healthy food. So for example, I bake sweet potato brownies and then rather than just having one brownie, I'd want like six. And I think probably I was trying to deal with some sort of chocolate craving, but there I was <laughs> making my way through a plate of sweet potato brownies instead. And I was also finding that I was really starting to crave a lot of sugary foods, but I was really not allowing myself to eat it. And I was also getting to the stage where I was really upset if I couldn't follow my food rules. So when I was on holiday, when we, you know, way as having a lovely holiday as a family of four, I'd get upset because I wasn't able to eat organic or gluten-free. And then when I started actually missing social events and telling my friends that I couldn't go out because 
I was basically really worried about being in a restaurant and not being able to get dairy-free, whatever it was. I think those were the little light bulb moments I had. So I was like, right, I really need to work on this. And then at the same time, I had been training as a health coach. And amazingly for me, I was introduced to the concepts of health at every size and also intuitive eating while training as a health coach. Although it was only as one of many tools, but I was still introduced to them. And those were my saviors, really, because I went, once I started reading about those two topics, I realized that my behavior was very disordered <laughs> and I had a complete 180 turn. Wait, so one second. So you were a health coach, but introduced to health at every size. Usually health coaches are sort of weight loss coaches, like code for weight loss coaches. So what was the health coach that you were doing? So I was doing, it was a nutrition and health coaching. I can't even remember actually. It was about six years ago that I did it. Um, it was a, based in Australia. So it's an Australian company that I did it through because it actually, funnily enough, it was pre, obviously pre-pandemic where lots of things were face-to-face and I really wanted something that was online. And then ironically, something that was based in Australia was, was something that was offered to me online and it was also recognized in the UK. But yeah, so like I say, it was only one of many tools that I was offered. So although it wasn't, I mean, it was probably more weight centric than anything else, but they did use the health at every size approach. So yeah, that's how I discovered that. There was no intuitive eating in your eating disorder recovery initially? When I look back on it, it wasn't labeled as intuitive eating, but what I was being taught was intuitive eating. So I was learning, yeah, so I was learning all about how to neutralize food and faced a lot of my fear foods and all foods fit. And those kinds of approaches were what I had in that first recovery from eating disorder. Well, let me pause you just for a second. I realize that perhaps maybe orthorexia is a new term for some people. So I'm curious if you can just put on like your psychologist hat for a second. What is the definition of orthorexia? So the definition is essentially having an unhealthy obsession about eating healthy to the point that it starts to impact your well-being. Mm-hmm. That's it. So this nutshell. is like clean eating or only having organic, not necessarily for the purpose of weight loss, but like I just need to be healthy and maybe not conscious weight loss, but but definitely more toward wellness and clean eating. Yeah. So it's for the purpose. It's seen by the sufferer to be for the purposes of their health as opposed to weight loss. And I think that's the the key thing that differentiates diet culture and wellness culture is the focus. So with diet culture, the point is that you want to lose weight, but with wellness culture, the point is that you are trying to achieve optimum health. Mm-hmm. Quote, well, that's what makes health. it so tricky these uh-huh. days because diet culture still exists and sort of pushing people to go on diets, but it's either masked as this is good for you, this is wellness, or they don't even promote it as a diet. They just say this is healthy. And so if you think about it, diet culture has become sort of obsolete and has been replaced with wellness culture, which could potentially just be as harmful, if not even more harmful, because they're not even saying that they're a diet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's definitely my experience with it, because in hindsight, when I really honestly look at what I was eating when I was immersed in wellness culture, I was eating less foods. There were less safe foods for me than there was when I was dieting because... really. 
Yeah, I I was at my absolute most extreme. I was gluten free, dairy free, avoiding all processed sugar. I'd got to the point where I hardly ate any fruit because of the sugar. And at one point I was also experimenting with being vegan. Now, when you look at that, it doesn't really. What were you eating? Well, exactly. I think about it and I think, (laughs) what was I eating? I don't know. Not very much. There isn't really very much left in a supermarket that you can eat when you're, and also processed foods as well. I mean, ultra processed foods, obviously a lot of foods are processed, but there's this real restrictive, it's so restrictive, but no one's calling it out for that. And I still see people saying, you must be gluten-free for your health or you must be dairy-free for your health. And I'm like, people don't need to follow such extreme rigid rules for their quote-unquote health because it's if they continue down that route like it did with me, it's probably going to massively impact their mental health. And that's just not good. We need to consider our mental health as part of our overall health and well-being and not just what we eat because that is so narrow. Exactly. You know, this is making me think of Christy Harrison's book. She talks about the wellness diet. Maybe you can touch on that a little bit more because this was a really profound part of her book. Yes. Do you know, this was one of the biggest slaps in the face when I read that book, because (laughs) I was starting when I was on the beginning of my journey, I think I read the health every size book and then intuitive eating. And I think Christy Harrison's book was maybe the third book I read. And by the time I'd read health every size and intuitive eating, I was like, oh yeah, all diets are really bad. And yes, some of my behavior has been very disordered. But when I read that chapter about the wellness diet, I was like, holy moly, that is exactly what I've been doing over the last three years of my life. And what she talks about is this idea that basically diet culture realized that more and more people were getting clued up on the concept mm. of diets that we they don't work. to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they've done this very clever marketing. They've changed or shifted gears. They obviously still want to attract men and women into their fold, but they've just rebranded to wellness and wellness culture becomes very much more palatable to consumers because first of all, it's less blatantly fat phobic. So because no one's really talking about weight loss, in fact, the whole time I was in wellness culture, I never once talked about my weight at all. I was always talking about my health. But at the end of the day, wellness culture still prioritizes your aesthetics and your shape because there is a look. And mostly that is thin, really quite thin, white, able-bodied, long and lean, maybe more abs, So maybe different to what diet culture used to be about, but it is still a look, a look that is all about quote unquote health. And I think the other thing, and this is where I actually feel quite embarrassed as a psychologist at how I fell into wellness culture. And I think they use a lot of pseudoscience to lure people in. So they'll back up their claims. They'll say, well, gluten is bad for you because there was this piece of research that found X, Y, Z. And if you don't dig below the surface, you can be very pulled in because you think 
oh yeah, it is really bad. I must give it up. So much like diet culture, wellness culture is definitely about encouraging people to dedicate their time, their money, and their energy to changing their bodies. Yes, the focus is on health, but it's still to change yourself. So it's, it's moved from people don't want to just get skinny. Maybe they're more about getting lean or hashtag strong, not skinny. Yeah, exactly. Uh All of those hashtags associated, but that underlying assumption is that in order to be healthy, you must look a certain way and be a certain shape. So I think it's still selling this idea of weight loss, but it's just wrapped up in a different package. So even if you look at some of the things, not some of the things that I did as well. So I did cleanses, juice cleanses. It's that's low calorie. I was doing low calorie when I was suffering from bulimia. And then I was doing a juice cleanse when I was suffering from orthorexia and it still very much labels food. So back in the good old diet days, it was like blatantly, this food is bad and this food is good or rating them on red, amber, green or giving them points. But now it's about talking about clean and pure foods or toxic and impure foods. So you're still perpetuating this idea that food is either good or bad. It's just using very different labels. So yes, exactly. (laughs) But I think also talking to your point about it's embarrassing to sort of admit this, you're a psychologist and presumably somebody who knows a lot about eating disorder, given your training and more importantly, your personal experience, and you considered yourself in recovery and yet still fell prey to the wellness culture, I think is only testament to how powerful their marketing strategies are and how just how powerful they are in as an industry that it's not something that we can sort of say, oh, I fell for it. Like I just must be like sort of gullible or vulnerable or something's wrong with me, which is entirely untrue. And that's why so many people who don't have professional training, nor do they have personal experience already being in recovery, how in the world can we expect them to notice what this is? Yes, exactly. You're absolutely right. Because they're really good at marketing. And I think as with diet culture, it's very good at preying on people's insecurities and vulnerabilities, like you say. So they got me at that time when I was post baby and wanting to get my baby pre-baby body back. So, yeah. So yes, you're right. And I think the other thing is some of that messaging around, it's not a diet, but a lifestyle. So, Oh, oh, that's my favorite. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. So it's making people think, yeah, it's not a diet. I'm not going to do a diet. I don't need to do diets. This is about a lifestyle. This is about me changing me for the long term kind of thing. It's it's diet culture in disguise, 100%. And so we can just call it what it is. This wellness diet, the entire wellness culture is promoting disordered eating and potentially eating disorders, but it's all disordered eating. And so, I mean, I'm sure it's hard for somebody to sort of think about the way that they've been approaching food and movement as disordered. But if we look at it this way, when you go to the gym and the instructor says, well, work off that insert blank, whatever you ate, or go earn that lunch. Or when you go to a cafe and they have juice cleanses, I mean, you can pay like $75, whatever that is in in money for you. It's just ridiculous for a couple of boxes of juice. 
all of that is disordered eating, period. Like mm-hmm. no if, ands, or buts about it. That's just what it is. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's the thing is that when you're immersed in wellness culture, you don't, again, because of the marketing, you don't see it as disordered eating. So I thought that it was perfectly acceptable because I was quote unquote clean eating to always have organic, whole, avoiding overly processed food, no sugar. And it was perfectly acceptable because gluten is so terrible according to wellness culture, to be cutting that out and to be cutting more and more foods out. And another thing that is always demonized is sugar. So because they have that pseudoscience to back it up, all of that disordered eating seems perfectly acceptable. So yeah, it's so sneaky. I think there's no other way of saying it. It is so sneaky and it makes you feel like you are doing the right thing for your health And as a mom as well, I felt like I was doing the right thing for my family, trying to protect my children from sugar and things like that. Yeah, the evil devil. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But I think this is such an important point to sort of focus on here. I don't know what your experience has been like as a psychologist specializing in eating disorders, but I, I do know from my own experience, there are so many people who try to have conversations about eating disorders, disordered eating. And so many of the things that they're saying is extremely disordered in my mind, but because of our society, they, to no fault of their own, but because of their society, they're talking about things that are terribly disordered and we consider them normal. So this idea of eating disorder recovery, what does it look like? And for a lot of people, unfortunately, it looks exactly like orthorexia that we just think is normal. And that's like, that's terrible. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think you're right because it is so normalized. Even now, having been in wellness culture and now coming out of it, you are so much more aware of how much just everyday conversations are steeped in wellness culture. Like I have a friend who every year in January gives up sugar for a hundred days. That's just his approach to starting the new year and has also now started intermittent fasting and even better. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And again, because there is enough information, enough pseudoscience out there to support these, he thinks that what he's doing is really good for his health. And it's just there in everything we do. So that whole kind of idea of skipping macronutrients being a completely acceptable thing to do, the whole idea about only eating a certain time, i.e. intermittent fasting or eating much smaller portions, labeling food, like almost everywhere you look, food is labeled. If you go into the supermarket, it's just the marketing around food being a guilty pleasure or healthy. And this whole thing around prescribing elimination diets for people who don't need them as well. And this is a thing where I feel like I was so sucked in doing these elimination diets. And I I had absolutely no reason to be doing this apart from I wanted to get healthier. And so there is just so much out there where it's it's so completely normalized. And I think until you see it, because you're part of it, you can't, you can't see it. 
Exactly. So what if somebody's listening to this and they're like, okay, maybe they're right. And almost experiencing the same slap in the face that you experienced when you read Christy Harrison's book. What are some, maybe I guess for lack of a better term, tips to even starting to work toward food freedom or to push back on wellness culture and potential orthorexia? Yeah, I think this is such a good question. And I would say to anyone who's listening to this and wanting to go through this process, just be kind to yourself because I think food freedom for a lot of people can be quite an iterative process. You can go through days where things seem to be going really well and then it doesn't. So it's just being very kind and compassionate to yourself overall in this whole process. I think a very first thing for me was learning how to neutralize food and take away food labels. So I think even the labels healthy and unhealthy are not very helpful. So taking away all the sort of good, bad, dichotomous thinking, it's either good or it's bad. Actually, why don't you just call food what it is? So it's an apple or it's a piece of chocolate or it's lunch. And so starting to talk about food in in that way and neutralizing it can be really helpful. And then also, and this can be a process that takes a really long time. I know it was for me, but giving yourself permission to enjoy all foods. So having this idea, like I learned the mantra, all foods fit. And just having that as I remember, in fact, I remember the first time I had, I ate a sweet, which was maybe about three years ago. I hadn't eaten any sweets for Oh, a really long time. And my, my children had some and I was like, Oh, can I have one? And it was really liberating to just have a sweet. And I would say, as you're going through that process of learning to enjoy all foods is actually trying to tune into how you feel while you're eating them. So yes, it might be scary to begin with, but also I remember when I was eating this sweet, for example, I had like three sweets and I was like, oh, actually sweets, I'm choosing to have one because all foods fit. But actually after my third, I was like, it really hurts the inside of my mouth. And I realized that I don't want to eat anymore, not because I'm stopping myself, but because I've listened to my body and I've realized that it's making my mouth feel strange. So I really encourage people to actually start to tune into their body and feel how foods feel to them. And there's a big difference. And again, this has been such a mindset shift for me is thinking about the difference between food rules and food preferences. So a food rule is like, I can't eat this because it's not good for my health or I must cut out gluten or I can't have any sugar. Food preferences are different because you are, again, listening to your body and you're eating according to that. So my food preference is to not eat more than three sweets because it makes my mouth feel funny. That can be a food preference. You might say that you prefer eating a certain type of pasta over a different type of pasta because you prefer the taste or the texture. So it's thinking about other things. Around Wait, how do you say that? Pasta? Oh, pasta. pasta. I say how pasta. What? Oh, pasta. pasta. I say pasta. What did you say it again? Pasta. Pasta. All these pasta. English English pronunciations. I'm going to have to learn some of this. <laughs> you were saying. 
it's funny how you just say these things and you're like, oh, and I think because in the UK, we're so used to American television. So American accents for me are so common. It's so funny. And I think the other thing that I really learned and really helped with food freedom is starting to think about food as more than just fuel. So you hear that so much in the wellness and the fitness spheres. It's like food is fuel, but actually food isn't just fuel. It's about enjoyment satisfaction it's about comfort sometimes it's nostalgic you can eat something that takes you back to being a kid again it's around connection and family and this is something that I so lost when I was in my orthorexic phase was enjoying sitting down for meals with other people because I was so stressing about what I was eating so food is about that connection and together togetherness as well which I think is so important And I think the final thing, which actually probably is really the first thing to do when you start on your food freedom journey, is recognizing diet culture and wellness culture for what it is and saying no to those food restrictions that have maybe you've been following for a while. But that's such a good, important first step, really. Yeah. So I hope those are good tips. No, they are. I wanted to expand on one of the things that you were saying in terms of food rules versus food preferences. And so an example that you gave is just like your mouth hurt after eating a few candies. But I think even when we make that distinction, there's something about, I guess we'll use it, the wellness culture term again, that feels so sneaky that then we say, no, 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 this is my food preference. I actually prefer things this way. It's not a food rule. And I think we have to be so tuned in to what tricks wellness culture is teaching us that we have sort of internalized into our own minds because maybe we can sort of explain our way to other people, but we have to be brutally honest with ourselves. Where is this coming from? Where is it really coming from? Yeah, you're so right about that. I remember an experience I had a couple of years ago with some Doritos. And I really, in our house, we have all sorts of everything, biscuits, chocolate, sweets, ice cream, and obviously all other foods full of nutrients as well. And I had a packet of Doritos and I remember going through the process of eating it. And it actually very much reminded me of when I was first recovering from bulimia, that facing your fear foods. And I was eating more than perhaps I, so so wellness culture speak in my head was saying, okay, you've had enough crisps now, you've had enough crisps. And I was like, what I was really saying was that, no, no, I really would like some more, but wellness culture was saying, no, 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 you're done, you're done. And it's funny, you still sometimes have these little battles in your head. So what I did for myself was I'm going to have some of these crisps every single night because I prefer eating them in the evening every single night until that voice goes away. And it maybe took me about 10 days and I had to keep buying new packets of it. But then suddenly the (laughs) voice went away and I probably only had those crisps a handful of time since. But I think there's something about facing those foods and I sat down and I enjoyed it and I savoured the taste and the crunch and everything. And it's about facing them and telling that wellness culture voice that it's okay. I can eat these crisps and I'm going to be fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And 10 days is what it took for you. It might take 
infinitely longer for someone else, especially if we're holding on to some sort of pseudo food freedom that I was just mentioning before. So if you're saying, oh, no, 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 that's enough, but you have it every night, but you still sort of limit your quantity, I don't know how much that's going to work. But this is something I was thinking about a couple of weeks ago when I had on my favorite gummy beers. And do you have gummy beers in the UK? Yes, we do. Yep. Okay. So that's the sugary the ones with the sugar on the outside. My favorite ones were the lemon, the yellow ones. No one liked the yellow ones. It was great. I always got them. <laughs> They're like, yeah, I can I have the blue and the red. I was like, yay, lemon. And a couple of weeks ago, there were a couple at a party and I had some and I just didn't appreciate them anymore. This is years and years and years of them being my favorite candy. And it's possible that my tastes have shifted. It's possible that my preferences have shifted. But I guess a part of me wonders if some part of what was so compelling about them back in the day was that I didn't necessarily allow myself to have however many yellow gummy bears as I wanted. And so this is a story that sort of changed over years, not necessarily days, but it's about the process of working towards something as opposed to the end game of recovery or I am an intuitive eater. It's a process and almost enjoying the process or celebrating small wins is going to be so important. Yes. I so agree with you. I so agree with you. I've just thought of one more tip, which I found so helpful in my journey is to stop following any accounts. If you're an Instagram lover, which I am, stop following any wellness accounts that either have before and after pics or they demonize food or they talk about any particular supplement being the elixir of health. Just stop following all of them and change what your whole social media feed. That was such a huge one for me. Yeah, that's a really important one. I'm glad you added that in. They can follow you. What's your handle? My handle is Dr. Lara Zib. Yes. So they can follow you and swap out one of these influencers that says (laughs) you can look like me and have everything I have, which is not real. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us and for your words of wisdom, your personal story. This was so lovely to chat. And maybe before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you in addition to Instagram? Yeah. And thank you so much for having me. It's been great to chat to you today. So yeah, so I'm mainly hang out on Instagram. So Dr. Lara Zib. I'm also over on YouTube with the same handle, Dr. Lara Zib. And if you want to check me out on my website, it's easy to remember. It's also drlarazib.com. Who would have thought? (laughs) (laughs) All righty. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right, talk next time.